The following sermon was preached on July 18th, 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Organizing pastor Dr. Joseph A. Piper Jr. preached this sermon entitled Earthly Wealth, Heavenly Treasure on 1 Timothy 6, 17-19. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Well, I imagine all you boys and girls know the story of the rich man and the talents. Now, the talents were money. The rich man is going to go on a journey, and as he does so, he brings some of his servants in his presence. He gives one five talents, he gives one two, and he gives another one one talent. Now, what were they supposed to do with those talents when he was away? They were to use them for his glory and honor. The man who got five used his five and was blessed of the master. The man who received but two, he used them well. He was blessed by his master. The man who only received one did not serve his master with it. He buried it in a napkin in the field, and he was not blessed by his master. Now, what Christ lays out there in this parable uh, is a picture to us, uh, or a foundation of the theology of Christian stewardship as Paul develops it here in uh, verses 17 through 19 of 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6. Now, sometimes when in our age we read this and we think, well, this doesn't have much for me. Uh, Paul here is talking what Timothy is supposed to say to the wealthy. Well, there's a couple of reasons why this is very important for us. And one is that if you just put yourself back in the days when Paul wrote this to Timothy, most of us in this room would have been considered wealthy. In fact, throughout the 2,000 years of the Christian church, most of us, even to this day, are much wealthier than the majority of our brothers and sisters throughout the world. So, in a sense, we all are categorized by that concept. But, but moreover, we all have some wealth. Uh, we have some possessions. And whether they're the one talent or the five, we are to use them in the way that God's appointed for His glory and for His honor. And that's where the Spirit is directing us today, both individually, but also as a congregation. This last chapter of Timothy, beginning in verse 3, Paul's giving him a series of uh, instructions to give to uh, the congregation there in Ephesus, dealing with false teachers and dealing with uh, contentment and, and the pursuit of godliness and uh, uh, obeying God faithfully with an eye on the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now he turns to this matter uh, with respect to our stewardship. Now I'm going to show you here that the wealthy Christian is to live humbly and trust in God for all things as he lays up heavenly treasure by using his possessions to serve the church. The wealthy Christian, or the Christian with material possessions, is to live humbly and trust in God for all things as he lays up treasure in heaven by serving or using his possessions to serve God in the church. So we're going to consider three things from these three verses. Verse 17, we look at the Christian's relationship to wealth. Verse 18, the Christian's use of wealth. And verse 19, the Christian's motive for the right use of wealth. So verse 17, then, we begin with uh, this relationship of the Christian uh, to wealth, or we could say to our, our material possessions. 
Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things. Those who are rich in this present world, the word present world simply means in this age. This is a reference to the age in which we live between the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ and his second coming. This, the last days, the, the present world, uh, this present age. Paul says that we need instruction. And so he gives a commandment to Timothy of what to do, that he is to deliver apostolic instruction. So what we have here is divine authoritative instruction. These are not suggestions. They're not pious advice. No, these are godly commandments. Instruct those who are rich in this present world, living in this age between the first coming and the second coming of the Christ, um, to avoid two things. Instruct them not to be conceited, not to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. So the commandment instruct takes these two infinitives. Instruct not to be conceited, not to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. What we have here is basically a call to uh, uh, avoid pride in our wealth and avoid idolatry in our wealth. So in the first place, he says, instruct them not to be conceited, not to be proud. That is the temptation, isn't it? And we all have it. We all look down on other people. All the talk about racism, it's just a matter of pride, whether it's the color of your skin or what clothes you wear, a car you drive, what kind of house you live in, a job you have, or how smart you are. We all tend to find those categories where we think we are superior and we look down on those around us. Well, that's particularly a problem, Paul says, that attaches itself to having possessions. The tendency is to despise and to look down on others, to be proud of what we have and who we are. James shows us how this manifests itself in the church in James chapter 2. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there. I sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? That, you see, is a danger that we can have individually. It's a danger that congregations can have. That we can begin to look down on those around us. One of the things that we hope that God will do uh, for us at Antioch is not only make us a, uh, a multicultural church, but also a multi-dimensional economic church that uh, the poor, uh, the middle class, the wealthy, all will be dwelling here as it's always been in a good church, in love and uh, a devotion to God and to one another. But we must then beware of this danger of pride that comes from our possessions. So that's the first warning. Instruct them not to be conceited. And then the problem of idolatry. For that's really what he's getting at in this next part of verse 17. Instruct them not to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Now he reminds us here of what we read in Solomon. 
that riches indeed are uncertain. As Solomon wrote, do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it's gone. For wealth certainly makes wings like an evil eagle that flies toward the heavens. You kids have seen these, the hawks that take off and soar up into the sky. That's the, the figure that, that uh, Solomon uses here of what can happen to wealth, particularly if you set your affections upon it or trust in it, which is idolatry. The psalmist writes in Psalm 52, 7, uh, that uh, the man who uh, uh, trusts in the abundance of his riches uh, has an evil desire. The strong in his evil desire. It is wickedness. It is wickedness because it is idolatry to trust in anything above trusting in God. Now, you don't have to be wealthy to do that, do you? Most of us have had this experience. We've had those times where we had an emergency and there was no money in the bank and we're crying out to God. But you know what I know I've done, and I bet you have as well. There's a time that an unexpected bill comes up, and I'm so thankful I've got that money in my checking account. And I'm not asking God for it. It's like the man that fell off the mountain. And he prayed, God, help me. And then he gets snagged on a limb. He says, that's okay. I'm safe. That's how we live. God, help me until we think we're okay. And we trust in ourselves. We read this week, my wife and I, that in Jeremiah, we're cursed as a man that trusts in men. Blessed is the man that trusts in Jehovah God. And so the danger is when we have a little bit in the bank is to, to trust it. Whereas Christ teaches us, we've just prayed it. Give us this day our daily bread. That must be a heart attitude, regardless of how much you have in your IRA, in your checking account, in your investments. Every day it must be, give us this day our daily bread, because wealth can take wings and fly away. God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. And so Paul is to instruct the congregation. I'm to instruct you. I'm to instruct myself that we're not to be conceited with respect to whatever we possess, nor are we to trust in it. But let our trust always be in the Lord. When you pray, give me this day my daily bread, pray it from the heart, not with that purpose. Well, I'm okay today. No, always pray trusting in the Lord. So those are two warnings, negative things. And he gives an anecdote. It says, uh, instruct them not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. But, and we're continuing now with that second infinitive, uh, to fix their hope, but to fix their hope on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Now the text that the King James, New King James uses here, um, uses the adjective, the living God. I think that's consistent with what Paul is saying throughout this book. Because the living God, as we've seen, is the true God in opposition to all false gods. And, and the living God, then, is the one who, in whom is the source of all life. And he is our dependence. But, you see, living God sets him in contrast, then, to all idols. And our wealth is just like the, the idols that the psalmist describes in Psalm 115. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, they can't hear. They have mouths, they can't speak. They have legs, they can't walk. They're dead. They're useless. Whatever you trust other than God is dead and useless. But trust, he says, in the living God. And we do that, as you well know, first, 
by our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the very act of coming to God the first time is the confession that I am nothing but a dead, rotten, filthy sinner. I have nothing, and I deserve nothing but wrath and condemnation, but God's provided for me the riches of Christ. I'll take hold of Him by repentance and by faith, and I trust in the living God, and I live in Him then. He in whom I live and move and have my being. I live in Him then for all things spiritual and for all things physical. That's why in our, our pastoral prayer, our prayer of thanksgiving and supplication, we include these things because it's all part of living as the children of God. So he says we are to trust in this living God, but is this not remarkable? Do you think about God this way? Who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. How many times do you cost yourself thinking, things are really going well, When's God, when God's going to zap me? And then we do that, don't we? It just can't, it can't stay this good. God loves to bless His people. <laughs> We're no health and wealth prosperity. But God loves to bless His children, just as you love to bless your children. As you love to, to give gifts to, to your spouse or to your parents or to some friend. The Father of all loves to give gifts to us. The only hindrance in His gifts to us and the reason that uh, our trials follow with our blessings is because of our tendency to idolatry. But I remind you what is said in our Shorter Catechism on the reason annexed to the fifth commandment. The reason annexed to the fifth commandment is a promise of long life and prosperity as far as it shall serve for God's glory and their own good. To such as keep the commandment. Now God, as I tell you, is not a socialist. He's not going to bless us all the same level with material possessions, even as He doesn't give us all the same brain or, or, or job or house or anything else. But everything that you have, everything, from your intellect, your personality, your house, your car, your work, your possessions, all comes from this perfect giver of every good and perfect gift with whom there is no shadow of change or turning. And so, don't look over your shoulder when God's blessed you. Just give thanks to Him because He richly... And notice the play on words in these first couple of verses, uh, how Paul will use this word rich. So, uh, don't uh, you who are rich, don't trust the uncertainty of riches. But trust God who richly supplies all things. And then verse 18, be rich in good works. He's using... This term, in lots of different ways here, but keeping this concept before our mind of what it means to use our possessions for God's glory. And so enjoy the things that God's given to you and praise Him. We feast and we fast. We mourn and we're comforted. And we enjoy friends and we enjoy a good meal and we enjoy flowers. There's some wonderful things that God's given us that doesn't even have a price tag attached to them. And we can enjoy all of them and think this is the God who loves to bestow favor on His children. And you praise Him for it. It's one of the reasons we give thanks at our meals. We're recognizing this God who set this before us. And we sanctify it then by the Word and by prayer. So the Christian's relationship to wealth are material possessions. Well, as Paul talks about God richly supplying all things for us to enjoy, 
He goes on in the second place in verse 18 to instruct us now how to use our possessions in a particular manner. Verse 18, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Now, if you have the, the uh, New American Standard, it, it does this the best. The word instruct them, you see, is in italics. Now, I've checked the ESV, the New King James. They just simply provide other verbs here. But this is, Paul has done this a lot in this letter. We call it an ellipsis. He, he is repeating a word uh, in his thought pattern without using the word. We saw this back in chapter 2 where Paul does this. So he says in verse 8, I want men, and then there's this uh, infinitive to pray. And in verse 9, likewise, I want, and that is not in the text, but this is the ellipsis, this is the supplied term. This is Paul's train of thought. I want women, then the infinitive, to adorn themselves. Or chapter 3, he talks out that overseer must be, if you got the New American Standard, you'll see that it must be repeated a number of times, verse 4, uh, verse 8, verse 11. Uh, because that is how Paul thinks and writes. And so the best word to supply here is this word. This is the second set of instructions, so to speak. So the first set has to do with our relationship to wealth. But now he builds on this. Yes, God has richly blessed us to enjoy, but build on that, instruct them. And now we have three infinitives to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. He moves here from the broader Christian responsibility to the very narrow thing that he has in view in the text. And I was thinking this morning, it's kind of like you're on Google Maps and you see uh, Greenville, you come down and you see your neighborhood, and you come down and there's your house. That's what he's doing here. So he starts with the broader picture. Uh, simply, we are instructed to do good. And this is the moral good. This is to love God with heart, mind, soul, and strength, our neighbor as ourselves. It's to do that which is good and beautiful and acceptable, to live by the commandments of God in our relationships. And that must be the foundation of all service to God, all Christian living. And then he focuses more narrowly. Um, be rich in good works. Now he moves from doing good to particularly doing works that are good, which he has already defined for us in chapter uh, 5 uh, with respect to the, uh, the, the widow. Uh, verse 10, having a reputation for good works, if she's brought up children, if she's shown hospitality to strangers, if she's washed the saints' feet, if she's assisted those in distress, she devoted herself to every good work. This is uh, the example of Dorcas in Acts chapter 9. As they plead with Peter to come when she died, and they speak of her good works, and then they show all the things that she's made for, for the widows uh, in the church. And so here, this idea, the second, the, the narrowing of the focus uh, of rich and good works is let your richness enable you richly to provide for those around you and particularly those in the body of Christ. And then he comes right down to our own house, getting to the point of the text, and that is to be generous and ready to share. Generous and ready to share. 
the word generous comes from uh, the verb that Paul uses in uh, Romans 12, 8. He who gives, give with liberality. And so we're talking here about giving. And as giving there is defined by liberality, this word picks up both of those things that we are to give generously, open-handedly, not selfishly, not resentfully, not grudgingly, not holding back, but giving of ourselves first, as Paul commends the Corinthians, that they they first gave themselves to the gospel. And then they pledged uh, their gift as well. And God wants us, you see, that's what He wants above all. He wants us as living sacrifices. And so all giving generously must come from giving ourselves open-handedly to God. Here I am, use me as you will. Here are my possessions, use them as you will. And so we want to, to be generous then with our wealth and then ready to share. Ready to share is the Greek word that we get fellowship from. It's the word uh, used in Acts 2.42 of the early church. They're continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now that fellowship is expressed then at the end of that chapter by their willingness to take of their possessions They soon were going to lose them all. They knew that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. And why cling to that which is soon going to be destroyed when there's people in need? And uh, they sold the property, no duress, but freely to share. So this idea of fellowship here is the key to Christian stewardship. It's also, we don't have time this morning to go into that, but it's part of the reason that we have the offering in public worship. There's a whole theology of this related to Fellowships developed quite well by Thomas Peck in a chapter in his uh, collected works. But our divine spelled it out like this as part of the communion of the saints. Saints by profession are bound to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God and in performing other spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification as also in relieving each other in outward things according to their several abilities and necessities, which communion, as God offereth opportunity, is to be extended unto all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's calling us here then to participate in the lives of one another. Yes, with, with our possessions. You know, we, we've so truncated the idea of fellowship and and. Friendship, having fun together is part of it, but it is so much more. It is is being involved in each other's lives. It is giving of ourselves to one another, giving whatever be necessary then uh, for uh, our brother or our sister in the body of Christ and even uh, to believers throughout the world. That's why God blesses us, you see. Yes, we may spend on ourselves and uh, there's no standard given to us in the Bible of of what kind of lifestyle you're supposed to have. Now what's nice is that proportionate giving, which starts with a tithe, kind of equals, equalizes everything at that point. See, if we're all tithing, and as, as we grow wealth in our estates, that we don't the tithe is the floor. I believe that we should be, most of us, as our estates improve, should give over that tithe. 
particularly as our lifestyles will change and children are gone and, and whatever. Uh, but that is the equalizer, you see. It's not that I have to have what you have, you have to have what I have. If we all are being faithful stewards, beginning with that proportionate giving, God's going to bless us differently. Now, He blesses us richly to enjoy, not to envy one another, but also that we will have more to give. And to whom much is given, the Savior says, much is required. And that's this whole idea of, of generous giving that's koinonia, participating in the body of Christ. So Paul has shown us how to relate, how to use, and it's a challenge, we'll admit, isn't it? Always to use our possessions as we ought. So he goes on then to give the Christian's motive for the correct use of wealth in verse 19. What happens when you are generous and ready to share? Storing up, now we have a participle modifying that, for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. What a remarkable passage. You can see here that Paul is in a sense intensifying the words of our Savior that we had earlier. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, nor where thieves do not break in and steal. Paul says this treasure in heaven is a good foundation. Now, earlier he said you can't take it with you in verse 7. You brought nothing into the world, we'll leave with the world with nothing. But you can send it ahead of you. So there are many people who flee countries like Hong Kong, not a country, but a city, or China, or Russia, or other places. And you know what they do? They send their money first. Many of us have had immigrants come here, and, and they sent their money first, whatever they had. That's where they were headed. And that's the idea here. This is not our permanent home. We're strangers, we're pilgrims, we're passing through. And Paul says, send your money ahead. Christ says, send your money ahead. Because there, it only increases. Now, their wealth does not grow wings like an eagle and fly away. No, there it is in the sturdiest treasury. There it is laying this good foundation. There is, you'll hear, as those servants of the talents heard, as the sheep at Christ's right hand heard, well done, well done. Can you imagine God saying to you, well done, because of a few pennies you gave. But children, he'll say that to you as well. Well done for your willingness, your love to, to serve and to help others. And the remarkable thing about God's grace is he does reward us. If you have questions about that, I encourage you to read Martin Lloyd-Jones' opening sermon in the Sermon on the Mount on this whole relationship of reward in the Christian life. It's all of grace. But God does reward us. He gives it to us. He enables us to do it. And then He turns around and blesses it. He accepts it for Christ's sake and He blesses it. But He will bless it. And you're laying up this good foundation for eternity. Now, I don't have the foggiest notion what all that implies. But if the Holy Spirit says it's a good foundation, then I know one thing. It's a good foundation. It's a great treasury. And it's all going to be ours, each of us, as we have invested in heaven. And then he makes this purpose statement at the end of that. Do that so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Uh, the term, the, uh, the phrase, life indeed, is another way of talking about eternal life, that, which Paul has already spoken. 
Um, and to take hold of is a word he used uh, earlier uh, when he challenged us to uh, make that uh, good confession in the presence of God. Uh, it's the idea of, with confidence, holding on to this reality, that this eternal life is yours. Now, it's not, it's not yours because you took hold in any way of good works. It's faith that takes hold of Christ, but it's a confidence that we have in Christ, that God keeps this treasury. God keeps this good foundation. And God uses then, not just our obedience to bless us, but this is part of our perseverance, isn't it? You see, doing this is part of taking hold. It's part of continuing the faith. It's part of, of persevering. And so we do this to persevere in the faith. And thus we see Paul's theology of stewardship. That the wealthy Christians to live humbly and to trust in God for everything as he lays up treasure in heaven by serving, using his possessions to serve God in the church. This speaks to us as a baby congregation. This must be a commitment that we have um, from day one. You know, we, as I prayed, we, we essentially received a great inheritance. The people that plowed the ground most recently before us uh, uh, with their tithes and offerings not only supported what they were doing, but as it began to die, they continued to support now what might be taking its place. And uh, I don't think we'd be here today um, without them, without a very wealthy friend who put seed money on the Antioch checking account that we've yet to have to use <laughs> by God's grace. So we dipped into it early on, but, but it's our... It's, it's larger now than it was uh, when, when we began. And so we've got a stewardship because of those people that have entrusted part of their tithes uh, to us. We have a stewardship as a congregation then to model this ourselves. This is why we're very committed to the idea of a parish ministry. We're to move here in the midst of people. And we want to serve families uh, in the community of Cashville uh, uh, around us. And from day one, and this is part, and we need to have a meeting and go over the next year's, just present things to you of next year's budget or whatever, but from day one, we're committed as a congregation to 10% of our receipts will go to other mission and evangelistic causes because that's part of, of who and what, what we are as a church that is hearing these things. But it's also very important for, for you and me as individuals and families to hear what Paul is saying to us here. And to examine ourselves by this, most of us have uh, much more than an average portion of this world's goods. And do you thank God for them? Do you daily trust Him for your provisions and not the provisions that He's already given to you? Are you tithing? Does that begin the place of your commitment to uh, honoring God with your possessions? I don't say all the tithe has to come into the church. But it must become the foundation, I think, of loyal Christian proportionate giving to the cause of Christ. But more than possessions, yourself. Are you giving yourself to the body of Christ? Are you giving your home to the body of Christ? Your other possessions and your time. Are you giving these things to the body of Christ to serve Him? For all that is a part, at the end of the day, of what Paul is referring to here. 
Now, when we examine ourselves, we all realize how far short we fall, how we're so often conceited and proud and rebellious and idolatrous. And of course, we confess these things and we come back with confidence to the Lord God, not only that He'll pardon us, but that He will give us grace, become sacrificial and and selfless, because uh, that's what He will do in us and for us. For He who calls us to give is a giving God. He gave us His Son, and in Him He freely gives us all things. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.